Good evening, everyone. Will you please, first of all, let me introduce uh, a friend of us all, Mr. Ian Clayton. Thank you. And a lovely lady, we've only met her for a, a few hours, but I think we're both enchanted Ian, aren't we? Yes. The truly wonderful... I have been since 1989. <laughs> <laughs> the truly wonderful Lucy O'Brien. I've spent the last ten days or so carrying this book round my house and reading it at various opportunities, and it's... Um, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a very tender, very uh, loving portrait of Karen Carpenter. Um, and it's, it looks at the musician and not the victim or not the person that were poorly for a lot of her, her life. And I, I love it for that reason, you know, that, that somebody's got the nous and the, and the good sense to write about about that. And I bet that's, that's how you, you started off, isn't it, Lucy, that you wanted to write about the musician rather than the poorly woman. Yeah, so um, uh, my editor is this guy called Pete Selby who um, started up a fantastic um, publishing um, imprint called Nine Eight Books. And, and in fact, some of the... Um, writers are, you know, you've got Bob Stanley coming in a few weeks and um, the wonderful Mickey Berenyi, she she uh, published her memoir with, with 9-8. And um, uh, he had read um, a chapter that I wrote in my book Shebop about Karen Carpenter and how she sang this kind of suburban blues. And he said, it's going to be 40 years since her death in this year I mean, he asked me about two years ago. <laughs> uh, uh, would you would you like to write a full biography of her? And as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, my God, yes, I would love to. Partly because uh, just before that, I'd updated my Dusty Springfield biography and I'd really enjoyed doing it because um, I, I was reframing her and re-looking at her life and discovering things about her that, you know, with, with the awareness that we have now, I, I understood, firstly, that she was an amazing producer, but she never got the credit. I understood so much more about her mental health issues, her, her lesbian sexuality, which we couldn't talk about when it was first published. So my approach with Karen was I want to do something similar. I want to reframe the existing story, the, the, the narrative of her as a victim, um, and yes, it was a really tragic story, but at the same time, uh, she achieved a huge amount in her life. She was at the top of her game. And for so long, people have spoken for her. You know, her brother has spoken for her. Um, there's been a whole narrative about how she was this terrible victim of the music industry and um, managers, uh, her family. And while that, there's, there's, that's true, there's also the woman that I wanted to find who was a real pioneer, someone who um, was a tomboy, who was quite tough um, and um, incredibly musically talented. And I wanted to really see what she'd contributed to the records, properly contributed. 
And she, of course, she was possessed of that of that voice as well. Absolutely. Beautiful, amazing, very unique voice, very unique in how deep it, it is. Um, and also as a drummer, and I think the two are intertwined. So the fact that she was such an excellent drummer really helped her with her phrasing, her pitching, her rhythm. Um, she was the consummate musician, definitely. You kind of phrased just before suburban blues I, I i've just called it easy listening like everybody else <laughs> but uh it fits yeah suburban blues yeah yeah um and gosh yeah i mean they uh the the, the carpenters um karen was born in um, new haven in connecticut um, and the family moved um, when she was around 12, 13 years old to a suburb of, of Los Angeles called Downey, which is apparently a, a Republican in a sea of Democrats. <laughs> um, and it's, it's complete um, suburbia, you know, 70s suburbia incarnate. Um, and I'll read a bit later on from, from my trip to L.A. when I, when I went and... Um, did some research in Downey. Um, but I think what happened to Karen was the move was very disruptive for her. Um, and she lost her friendship group. And I get the impression she was quite lonely because her grades dipped. She had been a straight A student. Her grades dipped. She, she was putting on weight. She used to be um, uh, into sports and she was no longer playing sports. Um, and then things turned around for her when she joined the, the school marching band, the high, Downey High School marching band, and discovered a real, that she had this real aptitude for drums. Um, and that's when she took up drumming, and she became completely passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And for her, that was her liberation um, mm -hmm. and, and finding, finding her power and her sense of agency. I'm thinking the image and the words are bluesy as well. Well, she says it. Yeah. What I've got, yeah. they used to call the blues. Yeah. They, I think they had quite, uh, both of them had quite an extensive uh, uh, well, record collection. Or they'd listened yes. to lots of different types of music, hadn't they? Yes. And, and they employed the crack session musicians of the time, didn't they, to work on their, yes, their stuff as well. Absolutely. That's why you get that wonderful harmonica on there. That's right. It's beautiful. Yeah, Tommy Morgan, and, and yeah. I interviewed him for the book, and, um, and he's rightly incredibly proud of that um, harmonica uh, playing. He says it's one of the best things he's ever done. It's, it's um, yeah. And he did it, he said he did it, um, it was really quite spontaneous in the studio, um, and it was done, he said, within 20 minutes, but it was one of those, you know, it's like capturing lightning. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it was just perfect. Um, for the yeah. time, it'll, but, it'll yeah, have been I mean, paid about fifty bob as well to do it. Probably, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this thing of suburban blues, um, you know, I, I do think with um, uh, the Carpenters was so long um, for so long were wrongly labelled as trite, easy listening. But there's such depth to to the music, not just in terms of the arrangements, but also her voice and what she's expressing. And that's the blues, is the pain, the mm. pain is inside. And, and I did a fantastic interview with Nikki Chin, who, who was one of her boyfriends, you know, the wonderful glam rock producer. 
Um, and he said um, that part of why they really connected and they got on so well was they, they, they um, recognised they recognised each other. And he felt, because he's been um, diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder, you know, since he was young, and he sensed with Karen that she was struggling with depression and that that really came out in, the, in her vocals and in the way she sang those songs and the way she communicated um, the depth of the pain um, mm -hmm. in, in a lot of those songs. And of course, you don't realise all this when you're being fed a product like we are with with music. You know, record companies put records out, yeah. and you yeah. you're told what you should like about it or not. And I, I mean, I couldn't stand carpenters when I was a young teenager because I I went into Lindisfarne and Wishbone Nash and stuff. And then I would, I'll tell you earlier, I was in Durham one day, and with Falker, a mate of mine, and he he noticed this. Reader's Digest compilation triple album of Carpenter's stuff, and it was 25 pence. And he said, I'm going to get that. I said, you never. He said, I am. <laughs> so we came on with this Reader's Digest compilation of Carpenter's greatest hits. And in between coming home and going, get, arriving back in Ferguson and going home, we, we went to pub and we, we got drunk. And we came, at one o'clock in the morning, he said, can I put my Carpenter's album on? Perfect time to listen to the Carpenters. <laughs> and within three songs, I, I was a blubbering wreck. I bet you were. I, 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 I was crying and it, it, yeah. something came over me. Yeah. And I, it was the first time that, that I think that that voice, that tone yes. hit me. Yes. And yes. you can hear everything that you've just been talking about there, the move from one end of the country to another, yes. trying to find no friends, yes. trying to find a, a, an emotional attachment to where you've moved to. Yes. Isolation. Everything is in that voice. And That's it. That's it. That's her, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. There's an extraordinary... Let, let me look at my notes. There's an extraordinary um, moment on page... 144, I wrote it down. And Karen comes out of a restaurant in Melrose Place in, in Los Angeles. And as she's coming out, John Lennon's going in. And he looks at her and says, excuse me, love, but I've, I've got to tell you, you've got a wonderful voice. And then he went into the restaurant. And she's with a companion. And as, he, as they walk down the street, she says, could he really have meant that? What, what, what does that say about her, do you think? What... Um, deep, deep insecurity. Um, and a real struggle with um, self... It, well, it's, it's kind of strange, because on, on one level she really struggled with self-belief, but on another level she um, was so musically talented that she didn't have to work particularly hard at her no. voice. She could sing, she had that pitch, she had that innate perfect pitch yes. um, but she still I think the insecurities were around her body image were around feeling exposed as um, the lead singer up front I think she went through a real crisis because as I've said she loved the drums she felt really really comfortable behind the drum kit and you can see in that video yeah, yeah. she's very comfortable playing the drums and singing at the same time that's natural for her um, but the moment that um, the record company, the management, Richard, 
come on, you don't need to hide behind the drums, which I think is a contradiction in terms, by the way. You know, if you're playing the drums, you're really expressing yourself. You're not hiding behind anything. But it was really their way of saying, we need you to sell the music. We need you to stand up front when when we're touring, when you're doing videos, um, and be the decorative lead singer. And she really resisted it for a long time. Um, because she knew it was perilous for her, actually, um, as we know now, uh, that that um, spotlight on her felt very exposing to her and and did coincide with when she started to uh, uh, worry about her weight, worry about her body image, and kind of go into that spiral of um, uh, the uh, what resulted in the anorexia in the end. There's something as well, though, about... You know, you were talking about self-belief and believing in mm. oneself, but you could probably believe what John Lennon said, because he wouldn't tell a lie to her, would he? No, exactly. And th and she was um this she was with Nicky Chin at the time, yeah. And and he said to her, you know, if there's one thing I know about John Lennon is that he would never say anything he doesn't mean. Yeah. <laughs> so he definitely means it. Yeah. Um, but I think part of that. Insecurity also came from a very strange family dynamic where um, her mother in particular was doted on Richard, her older brother. Yes. He was seen as the musical genius. Yes. And he was the reason they upped sticks and moved to L.A. in the first place because it was all about furthering his career. Um, and Karen was seen as the, the tag-along um, little sister um, which is why I've kind of called the book lead sister, <laughs> yeah. because in a way it inverts that. Um, yeah. Because the more I explored it, the more I interviewed people who knew her, her friends, boyfriends, musicians, this sense of a really quite restless but very strong woman, and certainly within the band, she was very active. She was making a lot of the decisions. She was there. 24-7 in the studio with Richard, contributing, certainly contributing as co-producer and assistant producer. You know, she gets all those credits. So um, there was not, she was not a shrinking violet. You know? <laughs> there, there was so much more to her than, than the, um, the tradi traditional story. Some very strange things are happening, though, while all this is going on, you know, it, by 1970, they've got Please Mr. Postman out, and by 71, they're world famous. Mm. And in 72, by 72, they've got a, a Learjet to fly them to their gigs. Yes. And everybody's heard of them. Yeah. But they still live at home with their mum and dad. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, it's weird, that, isn't it? That, Yes. I mean, it's weird to start with that a brother and sister would be looking lovingly into each other's eyes yes, and singing, yes, yes, singing no. the songs that they do. Yes. But then you find out that mother won't let them leave. Yes. They're still fastened to the apron strings. And I and I think that created quite a claustrophobic world. Yeah. Um, Hermetically sealed, you describe it. Yes, you, yes. You yeah. um, in one way... Um, it's what led to that very the, the intensity of their music because it's very intense music and actually I would say it's particularly easy listening it's quite extreme listening in, in terms of the um, way the vocals are overdubbed and overdubbed and the lushness of that mm. and 
I find it quite interesting that um, Karen was the, sometimes the one that would push, want to push the boundaries. So when it came to those vowel sounds and the lush sounds, she'd say, I want those vowels really huge. Yes. And Richard said, but they are huge already. No, I want them huger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think you, you kind of get that sense of uh, perfectionism, very focused, very intense work. And, and that close interplay between them, um, it's there in the harmonies. You know, siblings um, famously uh, really uh, 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 often in tune and harmonise brilliantly. You know, you see that in a lot of the folk families. Yes. Um, and you've definitely got it with the carpenters. Um, but in the end, I do think um, uh, it, it led to a lot of her problems later on in that she was trying to and fighting for her independence in the family and also with the record company, you know, in wanting to branch out uh, and become a, 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 a woman and a performer in her own right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, that, you know, when she finally does get her own place to live in, she spends most of the week coming back to her mother and also... A mother, she called her a traitor, didn't she, for, for leaving home? <laughs> so, um, this is a weird story. Is um, I mean, it's quite, it's sort of funny in a, in a, a darkly comic way that when um, the carpenters started making money and Richard and Karen started investing in real estate and they, they bought a house like a few streets away for their mum and dad and said, look, mum and dad, we've bought you a house you can move into. Yeah. Mum and dad didn't want to move there. They wanted yeah. to stay with, you know, Richard and Karen. Yeah. Why, why, why should we move? So in the end, Richard and Karen ended up moving out. <laughs> but um, the, the, the real crux and crisis point came when Karen, and by then I think she was in her uh, kind of mid-20s, she said to her mum that she did actually want to um, live on her own. She wanted to get her own apartment. And her mother just screamed at her um, and said, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're betraying me. Um, so, yes, it wasn't a normal family life. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the mother was um, very, very dominant, had a lot invested in her children. And the irony is... I'm only just kind of thinking about this. Sorry, I'm ad-libbing a question now. But the, the, they're portrayed as this all-American family, like the Brady Bunch or mm. the Osmonds or mm. something, the Waltons or something yes. like that, 1970s yes. all-American kids. Yes. The record company go along with that and, yes. and they're pushing that yeah. image of them they are. as they well. Are. Yeah. How much, then, is, is this a, a conceit from the record company and how much of it is really true, because that's what they really are like? So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that one I did a fair bit of digging around because I, I did feel that it was a misrepresentation in that one of the very early interviews they did around... It was around the first couple of albums. Um, they were both... Richard and Karen said that they were pro-legalisation of cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, you know, mainstream, normal America in the 70s. No. Um, they were pro-sex before marriage, 
which then, you know, there was a lot of the jury was out. There was a lot of the religious right um, uh, disapproved of, of, of that. Um, and um, they were anti the Vietnam War. So there were, there were several issues that they were open about and talked about. And then the record company looked at this interview and, and were aghast and like, sorry, you, you can't do that. You can't speak up in that way. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to, um, you know, we, we don't want you offending your audience. So I think in America, unfortunately, um, A&M decided that they were adult contemporary, you know, th this new category, adult contemporary, M.O.R., and they were determined to market them in that way, in a fairly bland way, deliberately bland way. Um, both Richard and Karen um, found that frustrating, really frustrating. Yeah. But at the same time, because they'd been trained by their mum to be obedient, they were obedient as well. So you get this kind of um, frustration, but at the same time um, feeling like they didn't much have much choice, that they needed to go, go along, along with, with um, the, the whole kind of promotional campaign in the way that A&M set it up for them. It's so interesting, obviously, that. But if, if you look at the 1970s music industry, particularly in America... We didn't have the internet, we didn't... So, you know, like I interviewed their tour manager, Rebecca Siegel, and she was saying, you just had to go on the road constantly. You had to um, push, uh, push the music constantly. Um, and it was a relentless schedule. Um, and um, there were... Uh, in, in that kind of area of mainstream pop... People were very anxious about um, uh, pop stars being outspoken or um, speaking in a way that was um, kind of political, inverted commas. So, so A&M Records are putting press releases out telling everybody what kind of waste disposal system they've got in the kitchen at home. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's waste. Selling yeah. stuff, I suppose. They're selling ideas and they're selling product as well, I guess. Yes, yes. Let's come back mm. to music then. Mm. Um, we've already talked about the, the kind of... It's not middle of the road and it's not easy listening if you're really listening. And Karen in particular was always pushing the boundaries of it, wasn't she? She, she had that voice, but yeah. and, and Richard and herself had the arrangements for the music, mm. but they were looking for new ideas constantly. I think that's it. They, they were um, incredibly confident um, about what they were doing musically, both, both she and Richard. Um, and um, I think they also loved playing with those top... Uh, session players, um, and that's what I loved about doing the book was talking to these guys. I mean, they were they so were the wrecking amazing. crew people, some of them. Weren't yeah, they? lots of people from the wrecking crew, but also uh, people like um, Bob James, who um, and this is on the New York side for her solo album. But Bob James is a real hero of mine in terms of like a, a jazz funk master. And he was working on her solo album. Um, and um, some of his records, like Nautilus, has been um, sampled by about 100 hip-hop artists, you know. So talking to people who were real, or, 
you know, some of the Steely Dan musicians, people who, who've been a part of so many important records. And I just think it figures that on, on a lot of these albums, including the one we're listening to tonight, uh, they had the absolute creme de la creme of session players and capturing them at a time in the 70s when they were all in and out of studios, they were all working together and there was such a great vibe. I think that's why those records sound so good um, now when, when we hear them back. She, she did go to New York to make a solo album. Yeah. Again, that caused a bit of a family feud, but we, we don't need to go into that. We've talked enough about the family, but she, she was ready for a departure. She was playing with some of the cream of the soul and funk yes. musicians in New York. And they, yeah. Didn't, what was his name from? Grimsby who wrote for Michael Jackson. Um, oh, yeah, Rod Temperton. Rod Temperton. Yes. He, he offered off the wall to oh. her before Jackson, didn't he? I she turned it down and rock with you imagine that oh my goodness <laughs> but having said that um my my husband my husband and i i sound like the queen um yeah we, we we were listening to her solo album the other day and, and just thought it was absolutely amazing um proper soul album a bit like patrice russian you know she yeah. she was picking up on all those vibes those late 70s she loved disco she loved what donna summer was doing and she wanted to take her music in a completely different direction. Like I, Dusty did when she did that, that yes, disco album of, yes. of hers, yeah. And I think that's why A&M had a real problem with the solo album, because it was, yeah. oh, my God, how are we going to market this? Yeah. You know, this is just too different. This, yeah. this is someone who's really, you know, as, as her boyfriend Tom Barla said, because she was a drummer, she could kick booty. <laughs> And that's what she was doing when, yeah. when, when she branched out. I'd love to be in one of their meetings, you know, when the top executives hear it for the first time. And you'll describe it beautifully in this book where she took the master tapes of the New York sessions and Herb Alpert and all the top A&M executives are there and they're sitting stony And Richard. Style. And, and Richard. Richard's there. And they sit in stony silence, don't they? Yes. The last thing Richard Carpenter had said to her is, do what you want, but don't do disco. Yeah. And she come back with a disco album. Yeah, 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 basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they, they, they didn't release it for years, did they? No, no. And I think that really devastated her. I mean, she, she put $400,000 of her own money into that record. Yeah. Um, I mean... They do. They say now, and Richard says now. Yeah, we should have just we should have just released it. Um, and hindsight is an, is a wonderful thing. But uh, she she was devastated by that um, okay. because she she was working so hard on it, and it was her statement. Yeah. I want to leave time for you to read. Mm. We're coming to the end of our our interview part now, but I want to leave time for you to read something but there's some quickie questions if yes, you want yes, mind yes absolutely Just, um, I, the family and the record company were always interfering with the relationships every time she got a boyfriend or a ni nice who seemed to be a nice man they found a way to get shut of them yeah paying them off and buying them cars and, and yeah. stuff like that so they'd mm. leave her yeah and yeah. then she meets the bloke who became her, her husband, she had a disastrous marriage for about yes. a year, lasted about a year. Yeah. And nobody interfered with the really bad. Yes, yes. Why, why do you think that was? 
Oh dear. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a quite a sad um, story. Uh, I mean, I think basically on the surface he appeared to be um, the real deal. Um, her mother was very impressed. Tom Burris was a real estate developer. He had baby blonde hair and California okay. tan and yeah. and he was a Republican and he worked for um, Mike Kerb who was a friend of theirs who was the governor of California yeah. um, so everything looked good everything looked right but then um, the longer she was married to him the more she discovered that um, that a lot of the real estate he had he, he didn't really have um, that the car that he bought her was actually um, on higher purchase and that she was paying for it. <laughs> so um, he was actually quite dodgy um, in the end. And he didn't even fancy it. Well, yes, there was that too. There mm. was that too. Um, and, and the other thing that I thought, um, a red flag, we all know this term mm. red flag now, was on the... She met him on a blind date and on the first night... He asked her what she did, and she said, um, oh, uh, well, I'm a singer, you know, with mm -hmm. the Carpenters. And he reckoned he hadn't heard of the Carpenters and hadn't heard... Liar. <laughs> she should have known at that point. Well, yeah, she... exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a big mate at Petula Clark's. Yes. And they once went together to see Elvis. Oh, I love And Elvis this. managed to get them back to his dressing room. He did, he did. And he was up for a, for a threesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Petula certainly wasn't into it, but I think Karen might have been. There's a revelation. Petula was trying to get her... Actually, you should read the book. I won't tell you anymore. You have to read the story. <laughs> Didn't say threesome in the book, but there you go. We've got an exclusive for the cat club there. <clears throat> and in 1971... She won the Playboy Award for the world's best drummer. Yes. And it sent John Bonham livid. Oh, absolutely. He, he, he was just outraged. <laughs> what that, else we got? That's really uh, funny. The politics. I think you've entered it already, aren't you? That yes. She yeah. lived in this Republican enclave of California. Mm. California mm. was firmly... Democrat. A lot of it was Democrat, yeah. certainly. And she yeah. lived in the... the yeah. And they did a gig for uh, Nixon as well. Yeah, point. they played in the White House um, yeah. a couple of times. There's something I find, and I put this in the book, I find very David Lynch about yeah. um, this, almost like um, Blue Velvet, you know, the beautiful, kind of vivid, um, technicolour America, and then that real darkness underneath. Where you uh, find somebody's the, ear on the lawn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> to me, the carpenters kind of have that. Yeah. And, and I think um, that's why, after her death, um, there was a whole re-evaluation of, of the carpenters. And, and um, for those of us who are into punk, and I'm sure there's lots of you, um, Sonic Youth um, did a fantastic song, Tunic, Song for Karen, that Kim Gordon wrote about um, Karen Carpenter's story. And there was that really amazing film uh, Todd Haynes did an animation with Barbie dolls um, called Superstar yeah. which um, we're trying to get a, a special screening of actually in the Rio um, cinema um, in Brixton um, it's, it's out of distribution 
Um, but um, I think they're trying to get hold of a copy to, to have like a proper screening. We should ask you why you picked this particular album. I mean, I, I don't know the Carpenter's run of albums well enough yeah. to, to have an opinion because I've only got the greatest hits, as I said. But So, yeah. to me, um, this is like a pop concept album. Yeah. Um, I think I think both of them, Richard particularly, was very ambitious um, for um, creating a kind of pop concept album. You know, he loved the Beach Boys, but he also loved Frank Zappa. And um, he wanted to make something, um, and between them, make something really complete. So there's a whole kind of arc to it. Um, right to the... So you hear the reprise at the end as well. So you've got a song for you at the beginning and the reprise at the end. And um, you're, you're kind of listening... And, and in lots of ways, it's a homage to music and the power of music in your life. It's not just about love and romance. It's also about the love and transformative power of music. And that kind of runs through and connects all those tracks. Um, and I think... In, in some ways, for me, it's the Carpenters when they had really hit their stride and they, the, the whole thing was seamless in terms of the, the singing, the songwriting, working with the musicians. Um, it, uh, just a really powerful, powerful um, album. You've given us a wonderful talk there. That's, that's fabulous. Uh, a real insight. And... You, I asked you early on, would mm. you mind reading something? Yeah, sure. I, I think they'd like to uh, hear something, and then we'll have a then we'll have our break, and then we'll listen to record. Um, so, I'm going to read a little bit from the epilogue, which was when I was researching the book. I spent some time in LA um, trying to find her, literally, um, and it was it was quite a haunting experience. Um, and, uh, well, I won't say any more than that other than... So I went to Downey and I found her house and then I went to the studios where they recorded um, where they recorded a song for you. Um, so I'll just read um, from this. I turn left and head along Downey Avenue, a long straight road that becomes less appealing the further I walk down. The cars are rushing past... There's nondescript housing, car spare shops, cheap malls. And as I get closer to the apartment building where the Carpenter family lived when they first moved to L.A., the thought flies into my head. This is where the depression started. This is where the eating disorder started. Karen was 13, uprooted and dispatched from the haven of New Haven to this place where she didn't know anyone. This part of Downey feels empty and soulless, intersected by roads and a railway track. I talk about um, finding an Uber driver, and then eventually I find one who takes me to Newville Avenue. Um, so for any of you who are fans of um, The Carpenter's Now and Then album, it's that really amazing um, uh, uh, album with the car on the cover. Um, so here it is, the house that was on the cover of the Now and Then album. It's smaller than I expected, pristine and perfect, ranch-style, well-maintained. It stands four square on this suburban street. This is where the family lived, even after Richard and Karen were famous. This is what Karen came back to after world tours and after they'd been in the studio all day in Hollywood. 
this place. I can't get rid of the feeling of emptiness. It drains me for the rest of the day. It's discouraging and sad. I get no sense from Downey of nourishment, of something creative thriving there. The next day I feel revived. It's a beautiful warm spring day. Maybe I'll find Karen again. I'm invited to my friend Wendy's house for Passover. We go to Sherman Oaks and break matzo. It's my first Passover celebration. I was brought up a Catholic, but the matzo reminds me of the communion host, and I still feel moved by the spiritual message of unity and endurance and the sense of liberation from slavery. The slavery could be on a wide political scale, the suffering of peoples, or it could be in the quiet, closed suffering of the heart. After Passover, we drive back down the freeway to Hollywood. It's dark now, and the night before the full moon, so the moon is glowing. We turn into Henson Recording Studios in the old A&M building. Fariel, who's head of studio operations, she takes us to Studio A, the large room with a grand piano, and then we walk down the corridor to Studio B. In the room, candles are burning. There are Persian rugs on the floor and tapestries draped over the baffles. An old black baby grand stands there and fixed on the wall is an enormous crystal shaped like a heart. The engineers say, this is Karen's heart and this is her room. The place is suffused with a feminine energy, a presence. Joe, the engineer, tells me that musicians love this studio. There's always a song here, one of them said, after a particularly good session. The, engineer, the engineers say it feels like someone's living space. Every night when they go up to lock up the lounge area above Studio B, they say, good night, Karen. Joe plays a few carpenters tracks into the studio and I sit on the sofa. It's pleasant, warm, womb-like, a place of good vibes and I don't want to leave. Then I hear Karen singing Song For You, and I'm alert. It's uncanny hearing a song that was recorded in the same room. It's like an echo of an echo. A record is a, so is a sonic imprint. It captures so much information, spatial and acoustic detail, that connects with emotion and memory. It's like Karen is singing in the room, and then she is singing quietly, not belting it out, but knowing with surety the power of her voice, because she knows with surety the power of the words she is communicating. See, she seems to be saying, this is a song for you. This studio is her happy place. This room is the mother load. This is where the music was made, and this, she says, is her gift to the world. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Before we have this break for 10, 10 minutes or so, let's have a thunderous round of applause for a fascinating duo. Catch you shortly. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. Lucy, it's, it's an album of, that obviously we talked about that voice 
and it's totally unforced. It's the first time I've heard this album all the way through. Mm. Obviously, I've heard five or six tracks from it. Mm. It's the first time I've listened to it from first track to last. And it, it, it's based around a voice again. So what do you think, having listened to it the whole way through now? In, in, you know, I think it's all of a piece. Yeah. I, I mean, it's the right mix of styles mm. that you, you, you'd think might clash. Mm. I, I can't bear that song about uh, Richard's about being a piano man and, mm. and you know, that's a bit daft. So that's that's where the, it clashes for me. But I think all the other styles, I, I think they fit really, really well and it becomes a, a, a almost a concept. Yeah, and I, do you see what I mean about this, this love of music, that it's mm. almost a homage to music um, yeah. as well as love and romance, the common themes of pop music. It, it, it's about what motivates them, what drives them. I won't last a day without you. Paul Williams and Roger Nichols. Paul Williams and Roger Nichols wrote We've, We've Only Just Begun and Rainy Days and Mondays, so they're quite key in the Carpenter story. And I, I love that song because it's not just a love song, it's also uh, a song about their love of music and how that's what gets them through, that's what gets her through. It's her relationship with music. Um, and as someone who's written... I've written about music most of my life, and it's so nice to have an album that reflects that back at you, that complete immersion. And all of you, you know, sitting here listening, listening to a vinyl album, it, it just seems to capture that, the intensity of that. That's the ethos of the cat club that you know you sit mm. and, yeah. and you listen. Yeah. That's that's why it started. I think something we didn't hit on it in in the earlier interview is that Karen herself had a very earthy sense of humour. She did. She did. That you never get told about really until until your book. That she had this dry sense of humour, this earthy sense of humour, yes. almost rude sense of humour. Yes. Bawdy. Yes. Yes, that's right, that's right. And her friend Cherry Boone O'Neill said she was very surprised when she first met her. She said because she talked like a salty sailor. Uh. <laughs> you know, but, but I, I think it kind of goes with she was a musician's musician. She loved hanging out on the road. She, um, and that's why I love that song Road Ode, you know, towards the end, the yeah. penultimate, just before the reprise. Because I think it really captures that energy, that full tilt energy of just touring, 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 uh, but being um, absolutely um, on a high with that early success. And that was, the, it had a real volition and a real energy to it. And I suppose that's what I was trying to capture with the book, was that to counteract that sense of tragedy, it's like, but there was loads in a lot in her life that she loved, and that she uh, she celebrated. And um, talking to the musicians who who spent time with her and worked with her, they said kept saying, you know, she had this really earthy sense of humour, including the Billy Joel boys in in New York. Um, that she appreciated that um, she didn't take things too seriously. Uh, uh, like Nicky Chin said. You remember the band Mop the Hoople? She called them Hop the... What's it? Hoop Hop the, the Mop. Hop the Mottle. 
pop the moodle. Uh, and Richard would say, no, you can't, you can't, kind of, you know, that's not their name. And she yeah. just thought that was hilarious. She liked to wind him up, I think. Definitely. She was a big fan of the trog. Has anybody in this room heard the trogs? Infamous live tape. Yes. She, she was a massive fan of that. Yes, yes. And there's more fucks per square inch in that <laughs> tape than, than any other thing that you've heard. It's very yeah, funny. Yeah. And she, she was a big fan of that when she was yes. on board as well. Yeah. yeah. How did it do, this album? I don't, I don't know if it did well or... Incredibly well. I mean, yeah. they had... In America, they had six hit singles from that. Six, like, top ten singles. Yeah. Um, not quite as many in the UK, but then the ones that really were really big, particularly uh, Goodbye to Love... Uh, which I remember was a bit of a game-changer. I remember when it was... You know that when everyone used to watch Top of the Pops and then the next day they'd talk about it? Yeah. So th I remember that was one of the ones that people talked about. There was a video and uh, it was such a change of direction for them in that they had those lush vocals and then that completely mad guitar solo at the end. Mm. Uh, very transcendent and it was a moment it was a cultural moment um, and people often say that was the first power ballad um, that one and the other thing little if you listen to that song I think it's the second long phrasing she sings the whole thing with just one breath there's a really really long I think it's maybe the second long line that she sings and it's all in one breath mm. um so it was a very challenging song for her to sing, but she kind of... Um, uh, it, it's, it is remarkable for that. It's, it's like almost bravado. When you mentioned in interview earlier on about how she liked to elongate vowels and she liked the sound of words... Yeah. You hear it on that really strongly. She sounds almost English, the way she's enunciating yes. on, on, that, on yes. that song. She's really putting her mouth around the, the words... So what's interesting is about the vocal training that both Richard and Karen had in that we sort of think that they just arrived there by accident. But um, And that's something I go into in the book is that um, their teacher was this amazing inspirational choir uh, director called Frank Pooler when they were at Cal State University. Um, he really uh, was quite pioneering and experimental and he got them singing with those very meticulous vowel sounds. Uh, so a lot of that is um, real, like, classical training mm. um, and you, you can kind of hear that. And also mm. singing in church, religious music too, that's all woven into it. Mm. Let's open it up now then. There's the people with a burning ambition to ask a question or this uh, threesome with Elvis and <laughs> I knew it I was only kidding um, oh. the mind boggles yeah welcome to Pontefract <laughs> um, which singers uh, was Karen influenced by do you think um she said that um, she really liked Barbara Streisand. She really liked Dusty Springfield. Um, she also, as time went on, she was paying a lot of attention to Donna Summer, to um, some of the black female singers. She also, she also loved um, Carole King. 
Petula. And Petula Clark. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think it's quite poignant that eventually she knew that she wanted to, to give it a go as a female solo singer. She knew she had it in her. And it kind of got to her that she hadn't won a Grammy Award for her work as a singer, as a, as a solo female singer. And had she survived, I think that's where she would have gone. She, I, I mean, I don't know how much she influenced her, but she was a big friend of Olivia Newton-John. She well. was, she was. And she, she looked at Olivia's trajectory, if we like. Um, you, know, you know how Olivia Newton-John... Um, had a complete change of image and then with Greece um, and uh, you're the one that I want and she was in all black spandex and everything um, I think that really made Karen think uh, and, it, and, and it wasn't long after that that she went to New York and really tried to reinvent herself mm. Yeah, I believe you've got a question could you uh, tell us anything about um, Richard's well-publicised addiction to quaaludes at a certain period and how that impacted upon the, the relationship between the two of them and their career? So I think with, with that, um, Richard became addicted to sleeping pills, um, quaaludes, and... Obviously, that started to affect his performance and affect it really badly. Um, after a while, though, it took a few years. Uh, but then it got to a stage where he was finding it very difficult to perform, very difficult to do anything, really. Um, and his their manager said, you've got to go into rehab. We just can't continue like this. So he went to rehab in... Um, it was a place in the Midwest, uh, it, you know, some right out in, 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 in the countryside somewhere. And this was in um, January, I think it was 1979. Um, and what's interesting is the alacrity and the speed with which Karen decided to record her solo album. Is that the, <laughs> is that the disco album? Mm. Yeah, it was almost barely within a couple of weeks she was making plans and she she uh was connected up with phil ramon and she was off um so it was almost as if that gave her the space and the opportunity to just go for it i was like i've got a window now and i am going for it how did that album do so i have no idea about so um the poignant thing about that is um, she recorded the album in New York. She had a great time, and, she, and, it, and it's, it's a really, really good soul album. It, as we were talking about earlier, when, when they did the playback, first in um, New York and then in L.A., it was the L.A. one that was particularly bad. So um, you, you had, I think Herb Alpert was there, Jerry Moss, um, Richard... Um, uh, and also, I think, Derek Green from, from the UK, A&M. And it was met by complete silence. Um, and um, there was Paul, Karen and Phil Ramone enthusing about it. And they were just looking at her, arms folded, and obviously had no intention of putting the record out. 
I mean, I just think it was devastating for her. It's like, it was almost like they were punishing her. It, 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 it's like, what would have it taken, guys, just to put it out? I mean... How many years was it before it did come out? So it came out in 1995. You know, Fifteen after years. After she died, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so a long time after she died. Um, but it's it's very interesting. You listen to it now, and I, I say, really listen to it, and you can hear that she's ahead of her time, and she's also really plugging into that whole funk soul scene that was around New York at that time. Um, it's quite sophisticated, and I could understand how they just couldn't hear it. They just couldn't hear it because they were thinking of the carpenter's juggernaut and the whole big sort of lush, this vocal style. And it's like, what's she doing? What's she doing? You know, and panicking. Like, well, well, we can't market this. I, I often know. think once a, a group or a singer's got a logo, it's very diff difficult to do something yes. that's outside of that. Yes. The, ca the curly cool carpenter's writing yes. kept them in. It's like a brand. Yeah. It's like, sorry, you're off brand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, we does not compute. We, you know, we can't, we can't work with this. And that's where the industry, you know, we were talking about yeah. that conflict between artist and industry. That's a fantastic example of, of that happening, hmm. that process happening. Just, just a quick one for you, Gary, on that, the, the Quellio sleeping tablets. He had an amazing resistance to them. I mean, I don't know how I many you take a night, two or three, perhaps. He could take 60. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. were quite um, strong. <laughs> Come and see me later. <laughs> they, were both, they were both popping pills and everything. You, know. you, you mentioned about the... We were on about the different styles in, in, in this album. There's country, there's, there's, there's rock, there's a bit of jazz, a bit of ragtime. But you mentioned um, towards the end they turned into Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, didn't they? I think you would do. If you made an album in 1972 in California, you're going to have that um, sense yeah. of harmonies. Harmonies were fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. it would have been similar yeah. musicians that, yeah. they, they, were, yeah. they, were, they, they were working with, yeah. yeah. I love all that lush... Yes. Um, and, um, yes. and you know, and that's the thing. Listening to the album, there's no backing singers apart from um, mm. their a little bit of their band, but it's mainly just them mm. and the overdubbing and, and multi-tracking. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, um, Ian, I'm absolutely with you on "Goodbye to Love" with a guitar solo. And, and early seventies, I was into glam rock. So Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman, absolutely. So, what about um, calling occupants of interplanetary craft? Oh, yeah. Where yeah. does that take us? We didn't even get a chance to do space. that, Space. Takes we? us to space, man. <laughs> oh. No, it, it's very interesting, that one, actually, because um, I noticed that um, lots of slightly younger uh, people, sort of in their 40s, <laughs> really like that one. Um, no, I think what was going on there was they were um, really pushing it um, in terms of the experimentalism and in terms of the orchestration. 
I like that one because um, it, it's kind of from a prog rock song originally, isn't it? Um, uh, and I like their treatment of it. And it kind of captures where Karen was at that point. It really did feel like she was drifting out and drifting out because of her illness and because of the anorexia. Um, and I think it sort of expresses that in a way. In, in view of what you were saying just before that about uh, solo career mm. and everything like that, uh, can you read any significance into the fact that there's, she's actually got no writing credits at all on, on the album? As, as... Yeah, um, so I noticed this, that she doesn't really get writing credits on anything. Um, uh, so... That was another one of my little escapades, really, is to investigate it and, and find out. And that's why I spent a lot of time kind of cross-examining the musicians that I spoke to. OK, so what did you see her doing? Literally, what did you see her doing? Um, and um, so many of them said, uh, talked about her presence in the studio and that it, she was a constant presence and that she uh, was contributing so much in terms of, you know, they, they talked a lot about, they could see that there were discussions going on with Karen and Richard constantly about what musicians were doing, um, arrangements, etc. And I just find this quite interesting, is where, where does the woman get credited? And I, and I do think uh, that it kind of comes down to just good old-fashioned sexism, that it's not seen as um, important work. It's just seen as, well, he, you know, he's the genius, and he's making all the decisions, and she's just sort of sitting there. Uh, so I think if you turn the picture round a little, you can see how important she is to that process and how she's contributing to that too. Um, in terms of... Yes, she probably should have got some credits that she didn't get. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Richard would ever admit that now. Uh, I didn't say Kenny that. Taylor. Just a question. Uh, do you think Richard was jealous of Karen? Well, um... Because, you know, the way it evolved, mm. she just seemed to get pushed yeah. under a bit and, and have the... If, if, if my sister was like in a, a band with me like that, and I knew she was suffering from depression. I'd be doing a lot more to support her yeah. and, and yeah. help her develop her solo yeah. career and all of that. Yeah. Rather, yeah. So is there an element of jealousy in there and seeing her rising up yeah. as a star? I think it's very complicated. So when, when, you have, when you have a parent, particularly your mother, saying you are absolutely amazing, you are God, you are the musical genius... And then your younger sister steals the limelight that you think is rightfully yours. I think it must be quite difficult. And I noticed when I was doing the research, the amount of interviews where he would dominate the time and dominate the space by talking about um, and complaining about how the carpenters were misrepresented and how much people didn't appreciate how much he did in the band... And he spent an awful lot of time talking about his contribution and what he did. And it's fine, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, and uh, Karen would be quite good-humoured, but she would often be in... By that process, she was often pushed to the background. So, yes, I think there was difficulty. I think, I think there was 
tension there in, um, uh, I wouldn't say a rivalry exactly, but um, he felt that he didn't get the recognition he deserved and that, that the, the attention was being focused on her as the lead singer when he felt, well, I'm doing all the, you know, I'm doing this, that and the other. It was just difficult. And, and I suppose in the end, that's why Karen wanted to branch out and do her solo stuff, because she kind of felt that this wasn't healthy, not healthy long term. And had she been well, I think she it would have been very interesting where she would have gone after that. Uh, my feeling is she would have actually had a very successful solo career. Um, much In much the same way as Dusty Springfield did when she was with her brother Tom in the Springfields and then she had her solo career and that was that was the real deal. Yeah. That brings me, I think, to the, to the last question of the night. Wouldn't you come back next year and do uh, Dusty Springfield? I would love to. Well, yeah. I would love to. <laughs> okay, before we um, say the thank yous, have you got anything else to say here? Or, Apart from, can you do... Oh, actually, can I just interrupt there? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. That's a really good point, because Michael O'Mara, my Dusty publishers, are going to publish Dusty in paperback next spring. Oh, there there we go. go. (laughs) You might be the first. I wonder who's going to get the interviewer's job. We've already been having a nice conversation about Dusty, actually. Well, that's followed and, uh, really and nice. a much neglected final album, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's been a very enlightening thing, and I, I think you've dug very deep here, mm. and and you've revealed something, which is what. I mean, if you write about music, obviously you're trying to find a new light on something yeah, aren't you yeah but you've you've succeeded uh, here in in a very special way because it it allows us to understand something that you know i openly admit at the beginning that i think well it's just tosh it's 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 <coughs> middle of the road it's not it's not saying much really yeah but i'm thinking about Music as a thing, as a product, I suppose, when I say that. But then you dig deeper and you get to that, to the voice. Yes. And I heard something that night drunk uh, on my Reader's Digest compilation (laughs) that was more than a product from a record company. It was about a woman's voice. Yes. In all its its ways, in its tone, but in what it's got to say. Yes. And, and... how she used it uh, for good reasons. Yeah. And you don't hear that much, but you do in your book. Oh, thank you. So that's what I'd like to say. Very well put, Ian. My old friend, and a friend of us all, Ian Clayton. And I've said it once, I'll say it again. The truly wonderful Lucy O'Brien. <laughs> Good night, God bless you, and happy trails. 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 trails.